This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open those to 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7. A.W. Tozer once said this. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The nature of our knowledge of God is such that it doesn't reside in the purely intellectual. He's not saying your ability to recite all these attributes of God is the most important thing about you. What he's saying is that your knowledge of God impacts every area of your life. What comes into your mind when you think about God has the power to influence what you feel, what you do, what you say, how you live. It's not quarantined from the rest of our lives. So what Tozer's saying is that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because that shapes ultimately not only what you do, but who you are. We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture today that I hope will greatly influence, greatly influence what comes into your mind when you think about God. I hope it will greatly influence what comes to your mind when you think about God. Let me set the stage before we dive in. This juncture in the story, David is king. God has granted him great military success. Uh, Israel has reached a place of settledness, at least to this extent in their history, a settledness that they've not had before. David is settled himself in the palace And overall, this is a decent place, a decent time in Israel's history. But as David is sitting in his palace, he becomes pretty reflective. He looks on the Ark of the Covenant, which had been brought back to Jerusalem, and he says, you know, I have a palace, but God doesn't have a temple. There's no place for God. See, the Ark of the Covenant, remember, was put in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And the Holy of Holies was the epicenter for the manifestation of God's presence on earth. When God came to demonstrate His presence with His people, this is where He would descend, to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so David's looking on the Ark of the Covenant and he says, there's no home for God. There's no house for God. Here I am in a palace, but there's nothing here for God. So he and Nathan, Israel's pastor, uh, have this conversation, and David says, i got to do something about this. i got to build God a temple. I'm going to build him a house. He deserves a house. And Nathan says, sounds good to me. Go for it. That night, God comes to Nathan and lays out a different plan, essentially saying, no, David, you don't build me a house. I build you a house. And by house, God didn't mean a physical house. By house, he meant a dynasty, a Davidic line of kings. God is saying, David, I'm going to do that for you. You don't build me a house. I build you a house. Nathan 
relays the message to David, and David responds in a, a um, profound prayer of gratitude and praise for what God had said, what God had done, and what He promised to do. And in the course of this chapter, we're going to learn four things about God. We're going to learn about God's humility. We're going to learn about God's grace. We're going to learn about His sovereignty. And we're going to learn about His glory. God's humility, God's grace, God's sovereignty, and God's glory. First, God's humility. So Nathan and David have had this conversation. David is determined to build God a temple. And this is what God says to Nathan in response to that. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever have I moved with all the Israelites? Did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? There's a kind of playfulness in God's words here. He's never lobbied Israel's previous leaders about building him a temple. He's content as things are. He's not dwelled in a house, but he's been traveling around. Why? Because his people have been traveling around. They were wandering in the wilderness. They were enduring the unsettledness of life during the judges. There's a sense in which God is saying he hasn't settled down because his people aren't yet settled. He's the God who travels with his people during their topsy-turvy journeys. If his people are going to be a pilgrim people, he's going to be a pilgrim God. And God is saying he's not going to rest until he has given his people rest. What's astounding about this is God's humility through it all. Do you see that in there? He's not a God who insists on living in the lap of luxury while his people, fickle people, make attempt after attempt to get their act together. He is the king of the universe. Everything that has been made has been made by him. He gives all human beings life and breath and everything else. He deserves certainly to live in a temple, but this God is humble. He's self-denying. He identifies with the struggles of his people. It's a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. What God is entitled to and what he does. It's difficult for us to get our minds around. Sam Rayburn was Speaker of the House several decades ago. And while he was Speaker, the teenage daughter of a reporter he knew died suddenly. The next morning, the reporter heard a rapping at his apartment door. He opened it and he found Rayburn standing there. The speaker said, I just came by to see if I, what I could do to help. And the reporter, trying to get over his shock, stuttered through it and said, I don't know if there's anything you can do. The, the arrangements have been made, and I, I just don't think there's anything you can do. So, so Rayburn said, well, have you had your coffee this morning? The reporter said, no, he hadn't had time for that. And Rayburn said, well, I can at least make the coffee. So he made his way into the apartment, worked his way into the kitchen in search of coffee. And while Rayburn was busy with coffee making, the reporter remembered that Rayburn usually had a stated weekly appointment on this particular morning. So he half inquired and said, Mr. Speaker, I, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. Well, I was, Rayburn admitted, but I called the president and told him I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't come. 
these verses are presented in this kind of color. And it's only a pale glimpse of the humility of the covenant God. The God who will not enjoy rest until he gives his people rest. The God who stoops down to share the hardships of his people. The unsettledness of his people. The God who's not ashamed to say, I've been traveling around in a tent with them. And it's an even paler glimpse of the humility of Jesus Christ. Who, being God, did not consider being God something to be used to his own advantage. But Jesus made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He lived inside our sin-ravaged world and ultimately died in your place. It's the humility of the Savior. So I have a question for you. When you think about God, does this come to mind? There is nothing in us that obligated God to come and live and die for us. Nothing. But he humbled himself. He came and he did. It's the humility of God. Second, God's grace. There are six phrases in verses 8 to 11 I want to draw your attention to. God is speaking. He says to David, I took you from the pasture and appointed you ruler. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make your name great. I will provide a place for my people. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. God ticks off what he has done for David already. I took you from the pasture, appointed you ruler. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I cut off all your enemies. So David has already experienced all this. This is God's grace in the past in abundant proportions. And then God ticks off what he will do, future tense, what he will do for David. There is more of God's grace that David is going to experience. It is grace upon grace upon grace. This is what I've done for you, David. This is what I'm going to do for you, David. Now, to get, to get across the uniqueness of this, I want to I get in front of you a few examples of how other religions around the world, in and around this time, worked. Because what's happening in 2 Samuel 7 was as unique in the world at that time as the Christian gospel is today. What was happening in and around the world in the religious climate of this day, 2 Samuel is as unique then as the Christian gospel is today. So I've got to throw out some names of other religions and other people, some, some bizarre names that don't naturally roll off the tips of our tongues. First example is the kingdom of Sumer and the god Enlil. The god Enlil chose Ur-Nammu, who's the king, to be king in Sumer. And here's what he did. He kept Ur-Nammu's enemies under control in order that, so that the king could rebuild Enlil's temple. So Urnamu not only did that, so Urnamu is rebuilding Enlil's temple, and Enlil is holding the enemies off, so, so, uh, so uh, uh, Urnamu can do this. And he not only does that, but he refurbishes the palace of Mrs. Enlil. For all of which, this god Enlil, quote, decreed a great fate for Urnamu into distant days. So he blessed him. He rewarded him. You rebuilt my temple, you refurbished Mrs. and Leo's temple, so for that, you're going to have great blessing into the future. 
pattern is similar in the case of Yadun Lim, 19th century BC king of Mari. His god Shamash granted him substantial victories, after which Yadun Lim built this magnificent temple for Shamash. And for this, he wanted Shamash to give him the ability to, to, quote, defeat the enemies, a long and happy rule, and everlasting years of abundance and happiness. Same thing happens with Thutmose and Amon-Re and Amenhotep in Amon-Re. Now, why go through these examples? Why go through these examples? Well, the mindset they reveal is light years from the mindset of God in 2 Samuel 7. Light years. There's a pattern that develops in these others. I want to show it to you. So in his other religious examples, the other world religion materials, here's what you have. The order is you've got a previous favor from the God, followed by temple building by the king, and then future favors from God, this is important, in response to the temple building. This is the religious climate of 2 Samuel 7. So you've got the previous favor from God, followed by temple building by the king, and then future favors from God, which is done in response to the temple building. In 2 Samuel 7, the order is turned upside down. It's previous favor from God, followed by future favor from God, followed by temple building by the king, but delayed to a later time. What I want you to see is how disconnected the temple building is from the favors of the deity. In compared to the world religions, in compared to the world religions, temple building is bound up and tied up with the favors of the deity. When we began this journey over a year ago, I maintained that the Old Testament retains a gospel shape to it. The Old Testament retains a gospel shape to it. And once again, we see it here. The essence of every other religion and every other worldview out there is you perform and then you receive favors from God. That's how it works. You see it here. But the essence of the gospel is God grants you favor and then promises you more favor. And in response to His past experienced grace and His promised future grace, you live for Him. So whether it's Old Testament Judaism or New Testament Christianity, the pattern has always been unique among world religions. Look, even if you say you've been a Christian for many, many years, I want you to make sure you understand the uniqueness of this. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. This is what sets it apart from every other religion and every other worldview out there. Every other religion, every other worldview out there predicates your favor in the eyes of the deity on your performance, on what you do for the deity on what you do for God, however He may be defined. You're accepted based on your performance. But in the Christian gospel, it is completely other than that. We are not accepted before God based on what we do for God. We are accepted before God because He has done that work for us in Jesus. Here's grace, God says. Here's more grace. And then I'm promising you more grace in the future. Our God is a God of inestimable grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So what comes to mind when you think about God? 
does that? Realize that in every place in our world where we operate, where we operate, your value is predicated on your performance. Your only value, as valuable as your performance is to some organization or some person or some system. But in the Christian gospel, our value is established and fixed in the life Jesus lived and the death He died for you. Third, God's sovereignty. If there was ever a doubt as to who is calling the shots and making things happen in this story, you just read verses 12 to 16. Because God is rehearsing for David who's really in control of his future and Israel's destiny. God says, when your days are over, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, but my love will never be taken away from him. God is absolutely unhindered in anything he wants to do with David's dynasty. Unhindered. He's bound by no one. He's never stymied. He's never cornered. He is always able to do whatever he wants. So after God finishes making this powerful speech, David addresses God in the most reverential of ways. In verse 18, God is addressed as sovereign Lord. In verse 19, David addresses him as sovereign Lord twice. In verse 20, sovereign Lord. Verse 22, you guessed it, sovereign Lord. Verse 27, Lord Almighty. Verse 28, sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. David got the point. He got the point. God is charting David's path. God is establishing Israel's future. God is calling the shots. And in so doing, let me tell you something, this text is confronting us with a reality that is often a difficult pill to swallow. And it's a very simple one. God is in charge, not you. The story of the universe has one author. One author. And his name is Sovereign Lord. And this Sovereign Lord is not really open to our suggestions on how to run the universe. The tone of this text is reminiscent of a story I came across a few weeks ago about a man named Aeneas Sage. Aeneas Sage was an 18th century minister in the Scottish Highlands. Mr. Sage was a physically powerful, built human being. A bit unusual for a minister, if I may say so. Well, Mr. Uh, Sage announced to his congregation one Sunday of his intention to hold a meeting for catechizing the people in the house of a certain landowner well known for his evil living. When Mr. Sage arrived at the man's house, the man asked why the minister had come. Sage replied, I have come to discharge my duty to God, to your conscience, and to my own. The man answered the minister saying, I care nothing any for any of the three. Out of my house, or I'll turn you out. The minister responded, 
if you can. I didn't realize that that was a tactic on the table for ministers. Well, there followed a sort of catechism preparatory meeting in which the landowner, who himself was described as a powerful man, um, engaged with Mr. Sage. And yet when the quote-unquote interchange was over, the landowner was lying on the floor with a rope around his hands and feet. Since the landowner, quote, was now bound over to keep the peace, as Mr. Sage put it, the minister called in the people of the area and taught them the shorter catechism. No one, of course, refusing. These verses possess an Aeneas Sage tone about them. God is going to hold a catechism meeting in your house, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. God's kingdom plan through David's dynasty is simply unstoppable. He will overwhelm sin. He will overwhelm death. And he will overwhelm time, if need be, to bring it about. And he has. After this story in 2 Samuel 7, the years wore on. And everything from the foolish failures of the people of Israel to blatant wickedness marked the reigns of David's dynasty. Israel was swept into exile and they remained in subjugation to foreign powers. You would have thought at that moment in time that somehow God's plan was faulty. had a weakness to it. But there was a child born. A Davidic child in the line of David. We're told that in him there is no sin at all. He trampled over death. He began his endless reign at the place of supreme power and authority in the universe. Nothing more remains to be done but to display to the world what is already the case. God's kingdom is unstoppable. This is a helpful corrective to the way in which we drift toward thinking about life and our direction and our choices and our plans. Are we not prone to wondering if God is on our side with whatever our mission is, whatever the task is, whatever the chapter is of life that we're living through, don't the, isn't the question naturally, is God on my side in this? That's the wrong question. The question is not, is God on my side? The question is, are you on God's side? That's the question. The story of the universe is being written by one author. His name is Sovereign Lord. Fourth, God's glory. In response to hearing all this, David has this prayer of praise. And in it says, And who is like your people Israel, 
the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. Now you read the first phrase of that and think David is elevating Israel. There's no nation like Israel. That's true. But in the very next phrase, David anchors Israel's exceptionalism to God's gracious and sovereign act in redeeming them. It's such a countercultural point to make. What he's saying and what he's realizing is that what makes Israel special isn't what they have accomplished. What makes Israel special isn't what they have done. What makes Israel special is that God chose them and did this for them. They don't make themselves great. God makes them great. They are redeemed. They are preserved. They are privileged. And it's not wrong to acknowledge the unique place of this community of faith. Likewise, it's not wrong to acknowledge the redeemed, preserved, and privileged status enjoyed by the global church. The Apostle Peter picks this theme up in chapter 2 of his first epistle. He says, but you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You're unique. On the one hand, it is right to say you're exceptional. But you're exceptional for a purpose. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. See, what makes you special, you as an individual, what makes you special isn't what you've accomplished. It's not your career. It's not your track record in marriage or parenting. What makes you special is what God has done for you. What makes you special isn't what you've done, but what God has done for you. We don't make ourselves great. God makes us great. This is what it means, by the way, to find your identity in God. In Christian jargon, we use that phrase a lot, to find your identity. What it means is that you're finding your value and your worth, not based on the resume you've put together over the years lived, but you find your value and your worth on what God has done for you and in you and promises to do into the future. But our exceptionalism as a church, the global church, our exceptionalism isn't meant to draw people's attentions to us. The church's exceptionalism serves a redirecting purpose. We see it in David's words, right? God redeemed Israel in order to make a name for himself. God is ultimate, not the redemption of his people. God is ultimate. God's glory is ultimate, not yours. The story of the universe, in addition to having one author, also has one hero. And it's not you. John Stott tells of the retirement ceremony for the Reverend Paul Gibson as principal of Ridley Hall, Cambridge University. Someone had painted uh, Mr. Gibson's portrait, and the portrait was going to be unveiled at this occasion. In his remarks, Mr. Gibson expressed a gracious and well-deserved tribute to the artist. 
And he said that in the future, people looking at the portrait would not ask, who is that man? But who painted that portrait? God's purpose in redeeming the community of faith, making the church exceptional, is not so that others will gawk at us. God's purpose in saving this community of faith and giving this community of faith a privileged, preserved position is so that others will wonder, who creates that kind of community? This is what it means, by the way, to exist to glorify God. To make much of God. So everything we do, from, from our love for each other, our love for each other is not primarily to make each other feel good and warm and accepted, although it is a good byproduct of that. The primary purpose of it is to elevate the one who loved us first and gave himself for us. Our generosity to each other in the world is not meant primarily to turn people's attention to us and, and, and gawk at our generosity, but to create wonder and awe as to who or what can create that kind of community. The redeemed community exists to make the fame of God's name great. We exist to glorify God. So people looking at the portrait of the church will not ask, who is that church? But who painted that portrait? This is what it means to bring glory to God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Does this come to mind when you think about God? May that be our prayer. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, help us to grow in our knowledge of You, Your humility, You've stooped to live inside a sin-ravaged world in order to redeem a people for Yourself. There was nothing in us that obligated You to do this, but You in Your humility and Your gracious condescension did so. Help us grow in our knowledge of Your grace. You've poured out favor after favor after favor because You've chosen to do so, not because we have twisted your arm to give us such. Help us to grow in your sovereignty, our knowledge of your sovereignty. You are the author of the universe. You are author of humanity's story. You're not open to our suggestions on how to run the universe. God, help us grow in your glory. We exist to make much of you. You're the hero. We are not. We shine a light onto that. And with the Apostle Paul, God, I pray that we would consider everything else to be rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. You've saved us to make much of You in this world. We do that now for Your glory alone. Amen.